All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin here, bright yellow so you can't miss it. You have your, a place in there you can ask us questions. You have your own translation. And for the rest of you, you can open up your apps there on your phones, or you can pull out your Bibles, you can look at your bulletins. We're starting a new series this morning. We're going to be in the book of James. We'll be looking at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And as you're turning uh, to God's Word, let's go together to Him in prayer. Oh, Father God, we do thank You for the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to this book of James, Lord, this wonderful book of, of practical living, we ask that You would open it up to us that we might see Christ, know more of Your grace, and know more about reflecting that grace in our lives. Give us truth, Lord, for our growth and for our transformation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Martin Luther, the famous historian and reformer and historian, hated the book of James. Hated it. Wanted it out of the New Testament. You know, he took away the junk books that are in the Catholic Bible. And by junk, I mean they were never actually confirmed as being from the Holy Spirit. So he took those books and he put them towards the end and said, these are kind of like devotional books. They're good for your faith, but they're not authoritative. And I really wish I could take James out, but I, but I can't. But it's terrible. Don't read it. It's an epistle of straw, is what he said. Hated it. See, whereas Paul is the champion of justification by faith, whereas he's all about the in-your-face grace of God towards sinners in the gospel. Martin Luther's all about that. But James, James is different. James is a more practical book. My family, we moved from Mississippi to Missouri about 10 years ago. And Missouri is the show-me state, right? I still don't know what that means. But what I think it means is they, they, they don't care what you talk about. They want to see you doing it. And James is the show-me book of the Bible. James is like, I don't care about all your highfalutin talk about what you believe. You can quote your Westminster, Schmessminster let me watch you live for a week and I'll tell you what you believe. That's what James is about. He's all about people who claim to know Jesus, proving it with their lives. So James wants to know what we actually believe. And he says that is shown in how you live. James is a thinking book. You're going to see over and over again lots of instructions, lots of exhortations, Lots of commands to think, to be aware, to consider. He wants his readers to see that their Christian life is a battle, not a vacation. So with that in mind, let's look together these first 12 verses of the book of James. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is God's Word. Well, I want to tell you about Ted. I met Ted uh, around the year 2000. Yeah, probably around December-ish of 2000, I met Ted. Ted does not remember me. Ted was... Stopped being and then became again a very big dog in the world of evangelicalism. I have always been and hope to always remain to be a very puppy in that world. But Ted's a big dog. Ted was at the top of his game. Ted was pastor of a 14,000 member church that he started in his basement. He was president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And he's the one who kind of got evangelicals really politically involved. George W. Bush came to see Ted several times while he was running for president. And all most presidential candidates in that time wanted to come see Ted. He was consulted by other business leaders. He was at the top of his game. He was 51 years old and things just couldn't be going better for Ted. And then it was revealed that Ted had been in a relationship with a male prostitute. The church that he started had no real understanding of church discipline as a grace. And so in very short and very public order, they fired him, shunned him, and as part of a very meager severance package said, you have to leave the state of Colorado. He had teenage kids, one child in college, and this church just wanted him to go away. So he ends up in Arizona, Phoenix, trying to get a job. And as John Mark can tell you, and as I can tell you, if you have a degree from seminary, you aren't qualified to do much, honestly. And so he's applying for job after job, and all they have to do is a quick Google search of his name, and whoa, the newspaper headlines all over the place, no thank you. We don't want anything to do with this man. So like so many ministers, he ended up selling insurance. Or in the case of me, when I was doing it, not selling insurance, which is what he was doing, actually. So... That's a trial. That's hard. Do you have trials in your life? Is life difficult sometimes? Or once you became a Christian, man, it's just been great, right? All my trials went away. All the concerns were gone. It's just been rainbows and lollipops, right? Yeah, no. Life is hard. And that's what James talks about today. I want to give us a main thought for today. Maybe you can write this down and talk about it over lunch and see how does God's Word show you this. In the difficulties of life, the stability of the gospel is our joy. See, to be stable in life's challenges, we need our life grounded in the gospel. That's where we're going. So let's look at this. First and foremost, let's look at the stability of a gospel life. I love how James jumps right in. He's like, hey, y'all, count it all joy when you have trials. There's obviously something big going on in the life of this church he's writing to. And he he says, regardless of those big trials, rejoice in those trials. 
Literally, we could translate it, be overwhelmed with gratitude in trials. See, the goal of the Christian life is not our happiness. It's not our peace. Those are benefits, and you get those. But that's not the goal. The goal is maturity. It's a depth of discipleship and a real fulfillment in this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And to get us there, it takes trials. For Christians, the world is a place of constant testing. Ease and comfort are rare. In fact, they're almost abnormal for Christians. Trials are commons. Now, if you brought a friend with you today who's not a Christian, you're sitting there thinking, worst sales job ever, Pastor Sean. I know. But this is the truth. And you know this is the truth. In fact, James tells us in verse 3, we know it's the truth. He tells us God has set up such a system. Why? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. See, God wants to produce endurance, steadfastness in His people. He wants staying power in His people. And that's hard on us. C.S. Lewis, you know, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a very famous author, he has this other really intriguing book I highly recommend called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, he has this great premise where it's an older, more experienced demon writing a series of letters to his nephew who's younger and has just got out in the world and is on his first real big temptation assignment to this man. And he's trying to stop this man from becoming a Christian, basically. And so he's writing specific advice on how to tempt this man in his life. And he talks about endurance and steadfastness in one of those letters. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters. Again, this is an older demon writing to a younger demon. Because you see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. Steadfastness is hard. And there's spiritual temptation to keep us from perseverance in general. And so God sends trials to help us gain endurance, to help us gain steadfastness. And you and I live in a culture that is the opposite of steadfastness, isn't it? Steadfastness is extremely hard for an instant gratification culture. I mean, everything tells us you can have what you want and you can have it now. We deserve pleasure and leisure now. Buy this car. You deserve it. It doesn't matter if you can't afford it. We can help you get it. See, this attitude causes what? What does it cause in us? We complain about a lot of things if they challenge us. We tend to feel exhausted when we actually haven't done anything. It's just the thought of having to get involved in other people's messy lives. We tend to act put upon if people all of a sudden start to depend upon us. And that's all from this idea of a lack of steadfastness, of things should be instant and quick. But God wants His people to have steadfastness and active, enduring, staying power. And so He sends 
trials. And so James says, look, instead of avoiding trials, let those trials go forth to their goal. Look with me at verse 4, because this is where it gets kind of freaky if you're not familiar with Scripture. Or even if you are familiar with Scripture, you read this and you may think, Martin Luther might have a point. Look at what he says. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect? Complete? Lacking in nothing? I mean, we believe that the Scriptures are God's very Word, but when you read things like this, you almost want to go, um, God, have you met any Christians? I mean, my life as a Christian is imperfect, incomplete, and lacking a lot. What, what in the world do we do with this when Scripture says stuff like this? Well, context matters in language. As I said earlier, we moved to Missouri about 10 years ago, and one of the things is we were trying to get to know people, and, and uh, St. Louis is an interesting, it's almost like a New England city in the midst of the Midwest. It, it, on all the demographic studies, it is like blue as blue can be. And so we're trying to talk to them and get to know them. And one of the ways to help people understand a different culture is through food. And so I was talking to them about Memphis barbecue, which as we all know is the epitome of what barbecue is supposed to be. When God thought barbecue, it was Memphis dry ribs. We all know that. And so I was trying to help them understand that because they were doing weird things, not as weird as other places, <clears throat> South Carolina does, but, you know, weird still. So anyway, I'm talking to them about this, and I said, man, it's so good you'll slap your mama. New England-type people, that demographic people who are very educated and have that disease of status, um, they, they look for reasons to get offended, and that, I gave them one, a big one, and so, um, it, yeah, it didn't go well. People, like, freaked out. How could you say such a thing? I was like, but it, it's on the advertisement. Look at the cup. It's so good. Ah, oh, no, my ears. And I bet people in Boston, which is where we're going, are probably going to react the same way, but y'all don't react that way, do you? You know exactly what that means. So, too, James is using language that his people know what it means. Look with me back at verse 1. Let's look at the second half of verse 1. Notice what James says. Who is he talking to? To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, when we read that, we don't understand that, so we just skip it, right? But what that is a clue to is that is Jewish language. James is keying in there, and he's basically saying, I'm a Jewish Christian, and I'm writing to Jewish Christians, and so I'm going to use Jewish Christian language. So specifically, in verse 4, when we have verbs like perfect, complete, lacking nothing, that is sacrifice language for bringing an acceptable sacrifice to the altar in the temple. He's talking about the qualitative nature. Is this an acceptable sacrifice, or is it not? Paul does this too. Also a Jewish Christian, Romans 12.1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. It's this idea of the way you live your life is somehow a sacrifice, okay? Now, if you're following me, you're like, Sean, you're not, you're not making it better because he still said perfect, incomplete, lacking nothing. Well, again, what James is trying to get us to see here is that Living sacrifices tend to crawl off the altar because they don't want to be sacrificed. James is seeking here for Christians to be living sacrifices, acceptable to God, 
which means that they stay on the altar even when it hurts. They stay on the altar of sacrifice as they're being sacrificed. That through the trials and through the difficulties, they don't crawl away, they remain firm. This is an abiding steadfastness that says something like, I know what are the, one of the hymns we like to sing, whatever my God ordains is right. Holy his will abideth. Or perhaps, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. See, that's what he's saying. You are a sacrifice and it hurts. Will you trust and stay there or will you crawl off the altar? And so he says, let these things, in verse 4, have their full effect. So the full effect of endurance and steadfastness is being a living sacrifice. It's glorifying God with your life. See, God is honored by lives that reflect His grace. Not pious platitudes. Those are easy. He's talking about Christians should have backbone, staying power, a depth of internal strength from the gospel in the challenges of life. See, trials prove we have that faith. Trials prove, or they prove not, if the gospel's in us. Do we really count it all joy to have trials? Because James says that's the stability of a gospel life. You count it all joy when the trials come because you know God is building endurance in you. Now that's varsity. That is like first team starter varsity Christianity right there. Trials come and you count it all joy because God's building your steadfastness. But what do you do if you're JV? Or what do you do if you're like me, if you're you know freshman B-team, practice squad. What do you do? Well, James has an app for that. And his app is the stability of gospel wisdom. James tells us next, starting in verse 5, that look, if you're not varsity when it comes to trials, to having joy, ask God. Notice, don't ask God for the trial to end. That's not what he says. And that's what we do, right? No, he says, ask God for wisdom in the trial. Ask God to have the wisdom to see Him working in your trial. Ask God for the wisdom for all that stuff from verses 1 through 4. Lord, would you give me the joy of seeing you build steadfastness in this trial because it hurts. Would you give me joy in this trial? Ask God. And my favorite part is that He tells us what? God loves to give without reproach. God's not like us. I love that. We come to him and we confess, I'm no good at this trial thing. I don't like it. Will you help me? I don't have joy. I can't do it. Help. And whereas we might be tempted to say, well, have you practiced? Have you given it your best? Are you, are you giving it your all? Have you tried really hard? God doesn't do any of that junk. He just says, yes, here you go. He gives graciously without reproach. He never grows tired of our asking. He never says like the maid, didn't I just clean this up? No, you need more wit. Great, thanks for asking. He never reproaches us to handle it ourselves. He's always there, always ready to help. He never chides us for not having wisdom in a trial. But he graciously gives when we ask. Again and again. I love that. It's so gracious. It's so encouraging. And then James has to go and ruin the ride with verses 6 and 7. 
just blow it. He tells us that we have to ask in faith without doubting. He even goes on to say in verse 7, don't even bother to ask if you're going to doubt. And again, you're reading James here, and you, you want to ask uh, Jimbo, again, have you met any Christians? We're, we're like riddled with doubts, man. How can you say this to us? What in the world do we do with this? Well, again, James, he's not speaking of a fleeting moment of doubt. He's speaking about, again, this whole language of being a living sacrifice. When the trials come, when the pain hits, do you crawl off the altar or do you remain? He's talking about an ongoing doubting, an ongoing counterbelief to the gospel of doubting. Not a fleeting moment of doubt. See, you can't assume that the Lord is going to give you relief or wisdom if you are living in this constant doubt. Again, not a fleeting moment, but a constant, I don't believe God's promises in the gospel. This is not working. You can't refuse to believe God's promises and then ask Him for His promises, basically. See, James is uncovering a heart here that lives in the doubt of God. Not that occasionally jumps into that pool and jumps back out again in a fleeting moment, but actually lives in there. He's talking about a person who never walks in faith. That as soon as it gets rough, they go. They're out of there. Instead of believing in the gospel, they remain in an idolatry of fear. And they wrap it with Christian language typically, but they are in an idolatry of fear. See, the very act of asking for wisdom during a trial instead of asking for the pain of the trial to end shows that you're not living in doubt, that you're living in belief. The very act of saying, Lord, this is, this is so hard. Will you give me the wisdom in this trial? That's faith. Doubting comes and says, I shouldn't have any pain as a Christian. You're not, you're not living up to your... No. End it or, or you're worthless. Get out of here. Have you ever been on probation at work? Maybe this will help you. Have you ever, you know, you know, your most recent performance evaluation came back and it wasn't really up to par and so they put you on an improvement plan and then at the end of this improvement plan, if there's no improvement, you have to have a conversation and yes, there's a reason I know these details. So, yeah, you've been there, right? Well, here's the thing. If you're not living a gospel life, if you're not really anchored in God's grace, when trials come in your life, you think God just put you on probation. You think trials mean you're on an improvement plan and you better shape up or he's going to get you. No, James says, that's dumb. Ask for wisdom because you need a lot. You're not on probation. See, the gospel is that Jesus Christ was put on probation for us. And he was actually fired from life for us. His evaluation from God was perfect. No improvement needed. And that evaluation is given to us by grace. See, if we've confessed faith in the resurrected Christ, we're accepted by God. We're adopted into his beloved family. We're not on probation Trials don't mean God is upset with us. And if we think they mean that, 
That false conclusion is the doubting, verse 6 and 7 think, speaks of. It's doubting the gospel. My life is all about me and my performance. Things aren't going bad. God must be mad at me. That is not believing the gospel. That is living in doubt. And you've got to get out of that and say, that is not right. I need to believe the gospel and ask for wisdom. You see, if we're not grounded in the gospel, but instead in in, in a religious hobby of churchianity, let's call it, we assume our religious practices cause God to give us a good life. And so when things aren't good, we're tempted to work harder, to be more serious, to try harder, to be a good Christian, whatever that means. And it doesn't end the trial, and it ends up making us very unstable, tossed emotionally to and fro. There's no joy. Now, if you're not a Christian... This is why right here there are so many unhappy Christians out there. We often have a very shallow understanding of the gospel. And so when the difficulties of life hit, we appear to have no resources. I'm sorry that you've been exposed to that Christianity. We're trying. We're works in progress. But the gospel does have amazing resources for helping us deal with the trials of life. That's why in verse 5 James says, just ask. And then in verse 8, I love this, he gives us a great picture of the instability that comes when we don't ask for wisdom. He says, you're double-minded, unstable in all your ways. It's almost like there are two people inside your head. And you know you do this, right? It's hard. I rest in God's promises in the gospel. I can, no, no, it's not working. I I better, I better, it's up to me. I, I I better work harder, tithe more, serve more. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ has perfectly fulfilled God's law. I don't have to work harder. Yeah, but it's hard. Maybe I can just be more judgmental. Come on, wear a suit. Come on, seriously, help me. There's no stability. There's no joy there. We're double-minded, unstable in all our ways. I want to give you a picture of this. I, I hit a squirrel once with my car. Anybody ever hit a squirrel with their car? Come on, raise your hand, right? Yes, okay. I don't know if you're like me. I hit that squirrel because he was dumb and he made me. I was driving home. I was 18 years old. I was driving home from my baccalaureate service, coming around the corner of my house, and there he is. And so he's right here, so I go to the right, and he goes to the right. I go left, he goes to the left. I write, boom, stupid. I just kept going. That was a double-minded squirrel, unstable in all his ways. And that's what happens to us, Right? Trials come. Ooh, I better perform better. No, no, I, need, I just need to believe the gospel. No, no, it's up to me. I've got to perform better. No, I better, boom, boom. And we kind of just check out of Christianity. We say things like, church is just irrelevant. There's nothing practical there to help me. I don't like the pastor. Music is not really for me. Why don't they buy razors? You know. See, really, it, it's actually none of those things. What it is, is it's not living in the gospel. Instead, it's living in an idol of doubt and performance, which makes you unstable, unfulfilled, and you have no peace. If that's you, you need to repent and believe the gospel. 
Do what James says to do in your difficulties and ask God for wisdom. And he gives generously without reproach. He loves to answer that prayer. See, James is a concerned pastor here. And so he's given the principles in verses 1 through 4. He's given an application, sort of, in verses 5 through 8. And now he wants to give a very common example in these next set of verses to make sure we get this. So he he shows us now the stability of gospel promises. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Okay, so stick with me here. He's talking about the trials of money. I don't know if it's encouraging or if it's sad that for 2,000 years, the most salient example of trials for Christians across all cultures is money. But see, being both rich and being both poor present trials to the Christian. Now, we understand the trials of a lack of money, right? But what about the trial of prosperity? And some of us are like, can I please just have that trial just a little while, maybe? Like a week, just to see? Well, here's, here's how we can understand this. You know, with the fall of communism, the gospel just started sweeping across Eastern Europe. And the Christians there who had been there already under persecution and then under freedom and under economic prosperity, they started to really see some of the difference. And I read this in a commentary this week from an, un, uh, an unnamed uh, Christian in Slovakia in Eastern Europe. Here, here's what he said. He said this. He said, you know, at least under communism, we had a clear perception of the enemy. Today the enemy is not so clear. And with increasing affluence, jealousy has reared its ugly head. Looking back to to communism, I realized that we had opportunities under communist rule that now seem closed to us. Yeah, he's like, man, there's something qualitative that has changed in the Christian church because of prosperity. See, Christians deal with the trials of money. It's either fear of want or it's the sloth of plenty. And Jesus, sorry, James tells both of these groups to look to the cross, to look to the gospel. The poor is elevated in verse 9 by the knowledge that Jesus would die for you. That's your exaltation. And the rich is humiliated that they're so sinful Jesus had to die for them. Rejoice in your humiliation. See, for both, what James is saying is it's the gospel that defines your value and your status and your worth, not your financial earthly position. That's wisdom in the trial of money. No matter where you are, you ask for wisdom in that and you see, oh, the lowly, struggling person is not of lesser value. We're one with the exalted Christ. Verse 9, rejoice in your exaltation. The rich says, oh, I'm not more important or worth more because I have money. I'm one with the humble, lowly Savior. Rejoice in humiliation. See, if you're having money struggles, hear that. It doesn't mean you're less valuable to God. If you aren't having money struggles right now, it doesn't mean you're more important to God. Both are tempted. The poor are tempted to think God doesn't care. The rich are tempted not to care about God. Both of those can be a trial. Either way, what James does is show 
the status quo, the default comfort of their life is challenged. God doesn't let us be complacent because our comfort is not the goal. His glory is the goal. And that glory comes how? Through our steadfast lives of faith. And that comes about how? Through trials. So our trials lead to a steadfast faith, which leads to God's glory, which gives us joy. It's a wonderful cycle. And for us, we can use this example as well. It fits for so much of our life. The poor and the rich are both exhorted to look at their spiritual status in Christ for their meaning, for their identity. Their ultimate significance is in Jesus, not in their net worth or lack thereof. That's having gospel wisdom instead of being a double-minded squirrel. See, and in that gospel wisdom, made strong in trials, we get finally to the promise of verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, he goes right back to that theme of steadfastness and endurance and grace. Why? Because trials are lifelong. They don't go away. You get ready, you get finished with one, and you better take a deep breath because the next one's coming. There may be respites, but they're constant in the Christian life because God is taking his people somewhere. We desire comfort and leisure. We avoid trials. We don't endure well. And we flee when things get hard. But Christianity is a pilgrimage. It's a hard journey. And we don't arrive in this life. And so he's building endurance for that journey into us. Let's make this real practical for us. We are now a church in transition. We're in a changing community. We're in a changing culture. We're in a changing church staff. All those trials require wisdom. But they're opportunities to seek wisdom from God. Just ask. God intends our trials to strengthen our faithfulness, to strengthen our dependence upon Him. He's promised us here in verse 12 a crown. A crown was a promise of victory. See, our failed tests teach us to cling to God for mercy. Our past tests Teach us that God is faithful. Either way, they help us believe the gospel more profoundly. As we persevere, we receive the crown of victory. See, and the great news is that we can be promised the crown of life here in verse 12 because Jesus Christ received the crown of thorns. That He died to secure our forgiveness. He died to secure our place in God's family. We never have to earn that place. It is secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that secure place of love and acceptance, God wants to grow us. Our tests, failed and past, teach us to cling to God for wisdom and for mercy. See, to get that gospel to get that truth deeper and deeper into our hearts, He sends trials. God's not out to get us, but neither is He out to shower us 
with leisure or untarnished privilege or health or wealth. Following Jesus is a call to suffer while being loved and cherished unconditionally. And he will then give you the resources for dealing with the trials of life. If you don't know Christ like that, where do you get your resources for handling the trials and difficulties of life? Where do you turn? What do you do? What is the bedrock of your strength? Because in the gospel, God offers you real help because he gives you real joy in real trials. Let me go back to my friend Ted. Ted's living in Phoenix. His church just wants him to go away. They're not really interested in him finding healing, not really interested in him finding help. In, in a documentary made in, I think, 2009 or 2010, Ted own responsibility for his actions. He did. He, conf- he said, I did it. I'm not going to lie. I fell into temptation and grievous sin. He owned that fact that he had created this church that had no idea about the grace of church discipline because it really didn't get the gospel, and that was on him, and it was his fault. And then he articulated on camera a deeper understanding of the gospel than he had had his whole first 30 years of ministry. And he ended it by saying, I am a broken man, full of sin, and my only hope is in Jesus Christ alone. The Lord restored Ted. He moved back to Colorado Springs to the same exact town, started another church, and it is a thriving gospel-centered church. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It's true of all of us that we are broken, sinful people and our only hope is in Jesus Christ. In the difficulties of life, God offers you real joy through the gospel. Just ask. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, it's hard to say But Lord, we do thank you for the trials that you bring to us because they produce steadfastness. They give us endurance. They give us strength of of, of character, Lord. They bring you glory and ultimately it gives us joy to bring you glory. So Lord, we do ask that in our trials, would you give us wisdom? Would you build our faith? Would you help us to believe your gospel and not think that we're on probation or you're somehow punishing us because life's not working out, that you are looking to build endurance. And so would you help us as living sacrifices on that altar, experiencing the pain of sacrifices? Would you help us to believe and to not crawl off the altar, but to stay there and to trust your wisdom? Lord, we can't do that. We can't make ourselves be religious enough We can't guilt ourselves enough into doing that. We cannot find the strength in and of ourselves. Would you give us a deeper understanding of the gospel that Jesus Christ has performed so we don't have to. And so you are purifying us, not punishing us. Well, would you give us that wisdom and trial? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you-